10. Father, we ask that you would bless tonight, and uh, we thank you that the kids are um, just ha- having a great time and, and learning about the birth of Jesus. And um, Lord, this is a time of the year where we uh, look at and, and remember and we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. And we don't want to forget why it is that he did come, that as the Son of God was born, the bread of life at Bethlehem and in Bethlehem, uh, Bethlehem meaning the house of bread, uh, that, Lord, that we have life now because Jesus went to the cross and uh, he was born so that he could die and die for us. And, and Lord, I pray that tonight as we look at chapter 10 and as we begin to go through it, we think, oh boy, what a heavy chapter. But there's a purpose that is written here. There's a reason and we want to make application. So I pray that our hearts would be attentive and that uh, we would be uh, allowing you to speak to our hearts and uh, we want to make application tonight. We want to have clarity in your word. So bless this time in the study of your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So in chapter 10 of Second Kings, we read, Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria, and Jehu wrote and sent letters to Samaria and to the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders and to those who reared Ahab's sons, saying, verse 2, Now as soon as this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you, and you have chariots and horses in a fortified city also, and weapons, choose the best qualified of your master's sons, set him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. And if you were with us last week, as we were looking at and studying chapter 9, that you recall that uh, it was Jehu that was anointed as the king of Israel. Um, it's interesting that in First Kings chapter 19, after Jezebel had threatened Jezebel, who was married to Ahab, at that time that Elijah was ministering, he uh, was ministering very powerfully in Israel, that uh, after he called down fire from heaven in chapter 18 of 1 Kings and consumed the sacrifice in the wood of the sacrifice, that it, and he would also have the prophets of Baal killed, 450 of them, we know that Jezebel, the wife of King Ahab, King Ahab was the king of Israel. He plunged the 10 northern tribes deep into Baal worship. He built Samaria. He built a temple dedicated to Baal there in the city of Samaria. Samaria would become the capital of the northern kingdom. And Ahab was a very, very evil king. And his wife, Jezebel, was very evil. She was very violent. She had killed some of the sons of the prophets. She wanted to kill Elijah. And when the word came to Elijah that Jezebel wants to lop your head off Elijah, that he would take off. And he went down to the mountain of God. He's in the cave. And it was the still small voice of the Lord that would speak to Elijah and say to Elijah, Elijah, I want you to find Elijah. He's going to take over the prophetic ministry. And that's what we have seen as we travel through Second Kings, that Elijah, at this time in their history, that he is ministering to the, mostly to the northern kingdom. And he is ministering in much the same way that Elijah did. But we know that Elijah also, in First Kings chapter 19, it's interesting to note, that he was told to anoint Jehu as the king of Israel. So years have passed since 1 Kings chapter 19 to 2 Kings chapter 9. Why Elijah never anointed Jehu as the king of Israel, I don't know. 
But we know that Elijah, who is the prophet, told one of his you know, uh, students, uh, one of his uh, ministers, one of the sons of the prophets, go and find Jehu and go and anoint him and tell him that he is the king of Israel and that he's going to fulfill the judgment that is to come on Ahab's house. Because you recall, as we discussed last week, that at the end of 1 Kings, Ahab and Jezebel had Naboth put to death. And the reason was because Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard. And, and it was Naboth that said, I can't give you my vineyard. I can't sell it to you. It's my inheritance. And so Jezebel would come up with this plan to have him and his sons put to death. So Ahab took over the vineyard, Naboth's vineyard. And so the uh, prophet Elijah who was still alive at that time. Uh, Elijah never died. He was raptured, but he was still ministering at that time. And Elijah came to Ahab and said, Ahab, three things are going to happen. Number one, you're going to die. And that happened in the next chapter, chapter 22 of 1 Kings. And that concludes that book. He would die in battle against the Syrians. Second of all, your wife Jezebel, she is going to die a violent death. We saw that last week in chapter 9, that she was thrown out of a window and she was trampled underfoot. But thirdly, Ahab, your house is going to be cut off and your descendants are going to be killed. So Jehu is, is going to fulfill that word that was given. And that's what he is beginning to do. In chapter 9, you recall that it was Ahab's son, uh, that Jael, um, or uh, Jeoram, who uh, was there doing battle against Syria. He's wounded. He goes to Jezreel to be, um, you know, resting and trying to heal from his uh, wounds in battle. So the king of Israel there, Jehoram, he's in Jezreel. And at the same time, uh, it is Ahaziah, the king of Judah, that comes up to see him. Now, Ahaziah, he is linked to Ahab. And you recall that in our studies of 1 King, that Jehoshaphat, when he was the king of Judah, he was a good king, he was a godly king, but he wasn't always wise. And he just had a desire, I believe, to really have the house of Judah and the house of Israel come together. So it was Jehoshaphat that we saw he would go up and see Ahab. They would do battle together. Matter of fact, Jehoshaphat was with Ahab doing battle against the Syrians when Ahab was killed. But Jehoshaphat, in his desire to bring the nation together, he would yoke himself with the kings of Israel, who were, again, all of them very ungodly kings. They were very evil kings. And we see the consequences of what happens as the truth is given to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. You recall Paul writing to the Corinthian church was saying, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. What is light? Have fellowship with darkness. So there's going to be consequences. Don't do that. Don't be linked together. Don't be yoked together. So that truth that we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is illustrated for us, I believe, in these chapters here. Because Jehoshaphat would link himself, yoke himself with the ungodly kings. And then Jehoshaphat, he has a son. And he says, why don't you marry the daughter, Ataliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jez, Jez, um, Jezebel. And that's what happens. It'll bring us together and we'll be one big happy family. So that's what happens here. We see that Jehoram, who was 
in Judah, not the Jehoram of Israel. You got to kind of keep your thinking caps on as we go through this. But there was Jehoram, you recall he's in Judah, and he ends up dying, and he has a son, Ahaziah. And Ahaziah, what happens is, is he goes up to see the king of Israel, uh, Jehoram of Israel. So Jehu, he's anointed king. He goes over to Jezreel. He ends up killing the king of Israel and the king of Judah. And now as we come to chapter 10 here in the first three verses, now with the king of Israel, Jehoram, or Jehoram, it's a variant spelling of the same individual, that now that he's dead, we have the descendants of Jehoram that are in Samaria that we just read about, 70 of them. That includes his children, his grandchildren, and they're in Samaria, the capital of the 10 northern tribes. So Jehu sends a letter and says, listen, if you want to keep your dynasty going, get your you know, toughest guy, let's get it on, let's fight, and let's see who's going to win. And here are those who were taking care of Ahab's sons, verse 4, that were exceedingly afraid and said in verse 4, look, two kings could not stand up to him. How then can we stand? And he who was in charge of the house and he was in charge of the city, the elders also, and those who reared the sons of Jehu, saying, we are your servants, we will do all you tell us, but we will not make anyone king, do what is good in your sight. So these guys that were responsible for taking care of you know, the sons of Ahab, they were the guardians of the sons of Ahab. They're afraid of Jehu. They're saying, hey, Jehu, he killed the king of Israel. He killed the king of Judah. We're not going to be able to stand against him. So they're going to side with Jehu. We're not going to fight against you. We're not going to resist you. What is it that you want us to do? We will be your servants. And so this is what Jehu does in verse 6. He writes a second letter to them saying, If you are for me and will obey my voice, take the heads of the men, your master's sons, and come to me, to me at Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. So it was when the letter came to them that they took the king's sons and slaughtered 70 persons, put their heads in baskets, and sent them to him at Jezreel. So this is a way that Jehu could know that all 70 of them were put to death, put their heads, you know, uh, in a baskets and send them to me. I want to see that these guys are actually dead. So it is the guardians that would put the 70 sons of, of Ahab to death and send them to Jezreel. In verse 8, the messenger came and told uh, him, saying, They have brought the heads of the king's sons. And he said, Lay them in two heaps at the entrance, entrance of the gate until morning. Now, why did Jehu do that? I mean, it, this is a grisly scene. He gets 70 you know, heads. He says, put them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate of the city there at Jezreel. It was a message to any, anybody that would see that, that don't mess with Jehu. He is the king. If you try to usurp the throne and try to side with Ahab's family, try to take back the, the throne, then this is what's going to happen to you. And in ancient times, they would do things like this to send a clear message to anyone who wanted to rebel against the king. Uh, it was almost like the Assyrians. What we're going to see here is that the Assyrians are going to begin to take the eastern tribes, that is the tribes on the east side of the Jordan River, uh, kind of off into captivity. But the Assyrians are going to decrease in power. The ones who have been really uh, harassing and doing war with Israel and also with Judah as well. But the Assyrians are going to decline and then a mighty empire is going to rise up 
and they are called the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are going to come take over Syria. They're going to eventually come in and take the ten northern tribes off into captivity. But the Assyrians were very cruel. And what oftentimes they would do is that is you would go into a city that the Assyrians had conquered, that what the Assyrians would do is they would take the corpse of those that they killed and put them on poles outside of the city and line them on the road. So when you came by, it was a clear message, a message of don't mess with the Assyrians because this is what will happen to you. This is kind of the same thing. Rome would do the same thing. The Romans, what they would do is they crucified, you know, criminals, is they would crucify them. The execution places would be nearby a road. We know from the gospel narratives when Jesus was crucified that there was a road nearby, wasn't it? And it was probably the road that, was, that would leave the Damascus Gate and head out towards northern Israel to Syria. And so the road was nearby these places where they would crucify people all throughout the Roman Empire. It was a message, you don't rebel against Rome. And that's why it's important for us to understand in the Christmas story of Luke chapter 2 that when Luke writes, it came to pass in those days that a decree went out. Well, what was it like in those days? The people were afraid. They were afraid of Rome. They were afraid of Caesar Augustus. You didn't dare, you know, come against Caesar Augustus. They were afraid of the governor of Judea at that time of the birth of Jesus, who was Herod the Great. And Herod the Great wasn't called great because he was such a nice, great guy. He was a great builder, but he was a very cruel man. And that's why he would make that decree to kill all the children two years and under in Bethlehem. So these are kind of messages that you don't rebel against the one who's in charge, and that's what he's doing here, trying to put fear into the people. In verse 9, so it was in the morning that he went out and stood and said to all the people, you are righteous indeed. I conspired against my master and killed him, but who killed all these? Know now that nothing shall fall to the earth of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab by the Lord um, has done with uh, what he spoke by his servant Elijah. In verse 11, So Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab and Jezreel and all his great men and his close acquaintances and his priests until he left him none remaining. And then in verses 12 through 14, Ahaziah, his brothers are killed. Who was Ahaziah? To remind you again, Ahaziah, he was the king of Judah that was killed along with Ahab's son, Jehoram. Ahaziah had gone up to see him. Ahaziah was the nephew of Jehoram. And we know that uh, it was Ahaziah who's the son of another Jehoram of Judah. Jehoram of Judah, who was the son of Jehoshaphat, if you're staying with me, that he was Jehoram married to Atali, who was what? The daughter of Ahab and the daughter, or the daughter of Je Jezebel. So Atali, we're going to see come up here in just a little bit. So Ataliah, her son is dead, and, um, or her husband is dead, and her son is going to, uh, to take over the throne of Judah. And um, excuse me, that's not right. I'm not even straight on this. It is Ataliah, her husband dies, her son takes over Ahaziah. So Ahaziah is her son, and he's killed now. So there's no king in Judah. So what's going to happen in Judah? 
Well, we'll find out in a few verses. But Ahaziah, he is linked to Ahab, and now his brothers are going to be killed. We read about in verses 12 through 14. And he rose and departed and went to Samaria on the way uh, at Beth-Eked of the shepherds. And Jehu met with his brothers of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and said, Who are you? So they answered, We are brothers of Ahaziah. We have come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. And he said, Take them alive. So they took them alive and killed them at the well of Beth-Eked, 42 men, and he left none of them. So now Ahaziah, who was the king of Judah, who uh, was um, the one um, that was ruling and related to Ahab, his brothers are killed as well. In verse 15, now when he departed from there, he met Jehonadad, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him, and he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart right as my heart is towards your heart? And Jehonadad answered, It is. And Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand, and he took him up to him into the chariot. And then he said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So that they had him ride in his chariot. And when he had come to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had destroyed them according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. So we see here that, um, that it was um, this Jehu who is killing, you know, uh, fulfilling the word of the Lord, killing the descendants of Ahab. All of a sudden he meets up with Jehonadad, who is the son of Rechab. Now who is Rechab? Rechab, it's interesting that you read about the descendants of Rechab in the book of Jeremiah. In the book of Jeremiah, what we read is that the sons of Rechab uh, the Rechabites, would come to Jerusalem because it takes place after this time. It takes place after the captivity of the house of Israel by the Assyrians. And then after that takes place in 722 B.C., then a little less than uh, or a little over 100 years later, then the Chaldeans, or that is the Babylonians, are the world power. And they begin to take over the Middle East, and they're coming into Judah and they began to take over Judah. So the Rechabites, what they were, the sons of Rechab, and Jehonadad is one of them, they lived a nomadic life. They, they lived in tents, much like the Bedouins do today. And they lived out there in the desert, in the tents. Uh, they didn't drink any wine. The decree was given to them not to drink any wine. They were patriots. They were uh, ones that were very much moralist. They were separatists. Uh, um, they... they uh, were ones that uh, were speak out against what was going on in Israel at this time. And, and uh, so they were ones that kept to themselves, but they were also very much, um, you know, kept to themselves in a way that uh, they wanted to keep away from, um, you know, any kind of uh, outside influence or anything like that. So here is Jehonadad. He, he has zeal. Um, he is one that uh, is very much, uh, you know, wanting to see change in the nation at this time, and he hooks up with Jehu. Now, when you go later on in the book of Jeremiah, I believe it's in chapter 35, the sons of the uh, Rechab, the Rechabites, come to Jerusalem, they come to the house of the Lord, and they are told to drink wine. And the Rechabites said, we won't do that. The reason that they're in Jerusalem is because the Chaldeans, again, are taking over the land. They have to lead leave the desert areas come and and they're trying to find safety in jerusalem they go to the house of the lord they're told to drink wine they said we won't do this our father Rechab told us not to do that and we're going to be obedient to what he has told us and the command he's given to us we have not given ourselves to wine 
And so Jeremiah is told that the message that you are to give to the leaders of Jerusalem is this, that if the sons of Rechab are being obedient to the command of their father, why aren't you being obedient to the command of the Lord? Why have you forsaken his commandments? And the Rechabites, there would be blessing that would come to them. There is blessing that comes to you and to me as we follow the Lord wholeheartedly. And that's part of the lesson what we're going to see and we'll discuss as we continue here. But here he is, and he's riding with uh, Jehu in the chariot. But one of the things that he knows about Jehu is we see that he says, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord, for they had him ride in his chariot. Jehu, he is fulfilling the word of the Lord, but he is doing it for his own glory. He's doing it to exalt himself. There's nothing wrong with having zeal. But when you have zeal, what is your heart? And what is your motive and what is your desire? We see here that Jehu was putting fear into the people, that he was trying to bring glory to himself. Hey, Jehonadad, ride with me, and we're going to show everyone how much zeal that I have. And so he was trying to build himself up, trying to you know, show everybody how spiritual he was. Look at him. He's got such zeal for the Lord. You know, you can come to church, and you can be up front, you can be serving, you can you know, um, be at Bible study, you can be worshiping, you can be doing all these things. People can look at you and say, look at the zeal that they have for the Lord. But what's going on underneath your roof? What's going on in your life that the Lord does see? And you see, here is Jehu. We're going to see that he compromised, that he did not fully follow the Lord. We will see that as we end the chapter here. And here before the people, here's all this zeal, and the people are saying, look at him, and he's bragging about how he's fulfilling the word of the Lord, but the Lord is the one that really sees what's in your heart and what goes on in your life. And I'll tell you, one way that you can really know where you're at with the Lord is simply this. What is your heart? What are you thinking about? What is it that you're doing? What is it that you're watching when no one else is around? Maybe your family isn't around. Maybe other people that you know, other Christians aren't around. What is it that you're thinking? What is it that you're watching? What is it that you're involved in? And know this, that the Lord sees it. And the Lord knows And you see, Jehu, there is compromise, and we're going to see it, even though he's going to try to present himself as having zeal. And so it continues, what Jehu is doing in verse 18, he gathered all the people together and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, Jehu served him much. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal and his servants and all his priests. Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. And whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu acted deceptively with the intent of destroying the worshipers of Baal. And then Jehu said, Proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal. And so they proclaimed it. Verse 21, Then Jehu sent throughout all of Israel, and all the worshipers of Baal came. So there was not a a man left who did not come. So they came into the temple of Baal, and the temple of Baal was full from one end to the other. And he said to the one in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out vestments for all of the worshipers of Baal. So they brought out vestments for them. Then Jehu and Jehonadad, the son of Rechab, went into the temple of Baal and said to the worshipers of Baal, Search and see that no servants of the Lord are here with you, but only the worshipers of Baal. So here's Jehu. He's going to go to Samaria. There's the temple there that is dedicated to Baal. 
And he gathers all the worshipers of Baal. He's deceptive in doing this. He says, I'm a worshiper of Baal. Let's have this great feast. So he gets all the worshipers of Baal. They have certain garments that are put on them, vestments. And um, so they're dressed for the kill, for the slaughter is what they are. So they can identify them. It's like putting a big bullseye on them. And so they're gathering them, and we want to make sure that all of the worshipers of Baal in there. So verse 24, they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had appointed for himself 80 men on the outside and had said, If any of the men who have brought into your hands escape, whoever lets him escape, it shall be his life for the life of the other. So let no one escape that is a Baal worshiper, or you're in big trouble. And verse 25, now it happened as soon as he had made an end to offering the burnt offering that Jehu said to the guard and to the captains, go in and kill them, let no one come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword, and then the guards and the officers threw them out, and he went into the inner room of the temple of Baal, and they brought the sacred pillars out of the temple of Baal and burned them. And then he broke down the sacred pillar of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal and made it a refuge dump to this day. And then Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel, verse 28. So Baal worship is um, done away with here in Israel. And then in verse 29, however, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, who had made Israel sin, that is, from the golden calves that were at Bethel and Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord of God of Israel with all of his heart, for he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam who had made Israel sin. This is where the compromise that I was talking about comes. He continues in the sin of Jeroboam. You recall Jeroboam was the first king of Israel, and when he became king, the prophet came to Jeroboam and said, listen, Jeroboam, if you follow after the Lord, the God's going to bless you and make a name for you, and your name will continue on the throne of Israel, but if not, judgment is going to come. And Jeroboam set up those two places of idol worship, dedicated to the golden calf in Dan, in the northern part of the country, and then in Bethel. So here is Jehu, he has so much zeal. I'll put to death the, the idol worshipers of Baal, but he continued in idol worship himself, the hypocrisy that was there. And he did not fully follow the Lord. So the Lord comes and says, listen, that your dynasty, your descendants will be on the throne only to the fourth generation. But because of the compromise of, of Jehu here, we see that not only did it affect him, and it affects the nation, but it affects also his family as well. And so to the fourth generation, that will be Zechariah, not the prophet Zechariah that we read about in the Old Testament, but the king of Israel, Zechariah. He will be the last of Jehu's descendants that we'll see in a few chapters that will be on the throne of Israel. Listen, I pray for you and for me as I, I read about this and I think about Jehoshaphat. Hey, son, why don't you go marry the daughter of you know, Ahab and Jez? Jezebel, Ataliah, why don't we make this alliance? Why don't we yoke together? And the consequences that we now are going to see as we move into the next chapter, the consequences that came to Jeroboam because he refused to follow after the Lord, that his house was cut off, and now Jehu's house is going to be cut off. Ahab's house is cut off. It shows us in this chapter a couple of things that are very important. How messy sin is. It is just messy, and it's bad news. And it brings death, and it brings devastating consequences, not only to us, but to our families as well. 
And what my prayer is for any of us that are here, that we desire to leave a godly heritage to those that are linked to us, whether it's other relatives or your children or your grandchildren, and you're one that you wholly follow the Lord. I like to think about Caleb. I was reading about him in my devotion. And, and Caleb was one that he was with Joshua and the other spies in the book of Numbers when they went into the promised land and they came back and 10 of the spies said, there's giants in the land and we can't go into the land and we're going to be stomped on like grasshoppers and, and they're huge and fortified cities. It was Caleb and Joshua who said, forget that. The Lord gave us a promise you know, that we're going to take over the land, drive out the, inherit, the inhabitants, and that's our land, the promised land. But the people listened to the ten spies, and so for 40 years the children of Israel were in the wilderness wandering, right? And only two men that came out of Egypt, Joshua and Caleb, 40 years previously to them going into the promised land, they were the only two that went in. The rest of them died out in the wilderness, that generation. And it would be as they were taken over the land that Caleb would receive his inheritance down there by Hebron, where the giants were. Caleb said, I want that mountain. And the Lord said, you're going to get that mountain because, Caleb, you wholly followed the Lord. There was blessing that came to him and to his family because he was one that all the days of his life that he wholly followed the Lord. And what my prayer for all of us here is that we would have a heart, not of compromise, not of deception, but we would have a heart that we fully follow the Lord in humility and in dependency upon the Lord and desiring to just please the Lord in every area of our lives. We see the consequences that happen even to Jehoshaphat because he would violate God's word that don't yoke yourself with that which is evil, unbelievers, and he did. And now as we move into chapter 11, we read in verse 1, Atali, the mother of Ahaziah, saw her son was dead. She arose and destroyed all the royal heirs. So here is Ataliah. Her, her son is dead. So she is the daughter of Jezebel, who was a very violent woman. Now she's trying to kill off the heirs, to Judah. Now here's the kicker. We know from 2 Samuel chapter 7, you remember, that when David wanted to build the Lord a temple, that the prophet would come back to David and said, you're not going to build the temple, you're not going to build him a house, but the Lord's going to build you a house. And upon your throne, David, is going to come the Messiah. So that's why when you go and flip to the Gospels, that so you see people that are crying out to you know, Jesus, son of David, son of David. It was a messianic term because everyone knew that the Messiah was going to come through the line of David. That's why you have the genealogies that are given to us there in um, the Gospel narratives. And so there is you know, the, um, the, the promise given to David, upon your throne I will establish, and upon your throne is going to come the Messiah, and he's going to sit on your throne forever. So here is Ataliah. She's trying to kill the heirs of David, because Judah still has that dynasty of David that is going on. So she is a threat to the covenant that God had made with David. Have you ever wondered, and this question gets asked a lot of times, why is there such hatred for the Jews? Why is there such hatred for God's people? And the reason is, is because it's satanically influenced. 
It has always happened throughout time, and I believe this is one of those times. You remember that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and when you go to Genesis chapter 3, the result of the fall of man, it was God that said to Adam, if you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. So he ate of the tree, the forbidden tree, and death and sin came into the world, as Romans chapter 5 tells us. And uh, you and I being descendants of Adam, now we have you know, death and sin that has come to us as well. And so Adam, this is what's happened in the fallen creation that we now live in. But God didn't leave us without any hope. And he would say to the serpent, the serpent, the enemy, Satan, who tricked Eve, he said that from the seed of the woman that he shall come, one shall be born. And he's going to crush your head, serpent. You're going to bruise his heel. That's the first promise of Messiah, clear back in Genesis chapter 3. Serpent, there's going to be seed that comes from the woman. And you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. So Satan, not wanting to get his head crushed, what has he tried to do? He knows that Messiah is going to come, you know, through the line of the Jews. So in Moses' day, there is Pharaoh, this evil Pharaoh that makes a decree that all the male children born should be thrown into the Nile River. You go through the history, we see Atalias trying to, to get rid of the heirs of David so Messiah wouldn't come. Because the promise is that through your line, David is going to come to Messiah. So she's being used by Satan to try to destroy that, to keep from, from you know, the Savior coming, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We know that as you continue in history, you have the story of Esther. As you look at, as I mentioned already, the story of Herod the Great that tried to destroy the, the children two years and under in Bethlehem. He was trying to destroy the Messiah from coming. He didn't want his head to be crushed and be defeated. Well, Jesus went to the cross. He died for our sins. He rose again. He has defeated sin and death. And Jesus hasn't come back to establish his kingdom yet. So we see on this side of the cross that it is Satan that's still trying to keep the Messiah coming to establish his kingdom. And one of the things that we see that he wants to destroy the Jews is because there's a promise as you study end time prophecy is that the Jews, their eyes are going to be opened and they're going to recognize that Jesus was indeed their Messiah, their Mashiach. Paul writes about that in Romans chapter 11. He says, in that day, all of Israel shall be saved. We read through the books of the Old Testament, the prophets, that there's going to be a time where there's going to be the restoration of Israel and God's going to establish his kingdom here on this earth. It's important for us to understand this because as you see the upheaval that's going on in the Middle East right now and Israel being isolated, the Bible is predicting that's exactly what's going to happen. So on this side of the cross throughout history, heavy persecution against the Jews. You had Hitler that tried to destroy the Jews. He killed six million Jews. And we know that that's going to continue, that in the last days, the Antichrist is going to come, and he's going to try to destroy the Jewish people as well. And the reason is, is because even though he knows he's defeated, he doesn't want Jesus coming back and establishes his kingdom, so he's bound up, and eventually he's going to be cast into the lake of fire. So we've looked at all of that. So what you see today, it's more than just a geopolitical you know, situation that has been happening for a long time in the Middle East that no one seems to solve. This anti-Semitism that we see is being stirred up. It's, it's spiritually uh, being uh, reinforced as Satan would love nothing more than the world to come against the Jews and try to destroy them. He still wants to do that. He still wants to do that. So that end time prophecies come along and they tell us 
that Israel is going to come to that point where they are going to be completely isolated, that Zechariah, and we don't have time to go into it tonight, says that Jerusalem will become a cup of trembling to all the nations. That's all the nations. And you see, they're going to be brought to that point of they can turn to no one but God, as you read in Joel chapter 2, that in that time it seems like they're going down and they're going to be destroyed. That that's when their eyes are going to be opened up. And that's when God is going to deliver them. It's fascinating to see that. It's interesting. That's one of the reasons why we're going to have a New Year's Eve prophecy update is because if you want to know, you know about end-time prophecy, know this, that the, the whole focus of end-time prophecy, a lot of it, concerns Israel. And the promise that God has made to Israel that I will restore you, and I'm going to bless you. That's why the disciples in Acts chapter 1 that we saw a couple of weeks ago were saying, is it now the time that you're going to restore you know, the kingdom to Israel? And that's a promise that God gave to them, and he's going to keep that promise. We see that very clearly as you go through the Old Testament prophets and the prophecies that are given to us, that Israel is the epicenter of end-time prophecy, and that's why he fulfilled his promise that he would bring them back into the land, and also, we are seeing the events in the Middle East. They line up with what the Bible has to say to show us that we are in the last days. And it's happening so fast. It's absolutely incredible. What has even happened in the last month? Israel had a war with, with Hamas as they were firing missiles into you know, Israel, into their cities. They've been doing that for months. And they continued to do that, even though warning. And, and so Israel began to, to go and, and find some of the terrorist leaders of Hamas and, and put them to death. And so this conflict broke out. And hundreds of missiles from Gaza, this little strip of land, is flying into the cities of Israel, Jerusalem, and Tel Aviv. And they had not experienced that from you know, the Gaza Strip. And it's interesting that um, you know, a, a good friend of mine was in Israel. He flew in the day before the conflict uh, started into Jerusalem. He's going to teach at the Bible college there. Calvary Chapel has a Bible college there in Jerusalem. He was going to teach there for two weeks. He took his son, and they went there, and then all of a sudden this conflict broke out, and he's in a hotel. The hotel is saying, you need to stay in the hotel. You don't, can't travel around. He was planning on traveling up north and to Haifa and to the Sea of Galilee. They said, you need to kind of stay and, um, and don't go anywhere. There was a carrier off uh, the coast ready to evacuate uh, any Americans in case the conflict spread. And if Hezbollah up north in Lebanon, they have thousands and thousands of missiles that they are now saying they can launch into any city in Israel. But it was interesting. He said, I couldn't just stay in my hotel room. So he's down by Hezekiah's Tunnel, which is just south of the Temple Mount. And all of a sudden, the sirens are going off. People are running. And all of a sudden, there's this big boom that he hears just to the south of them. And then right across where he is at Hezekiah's Tunnel, there's the West Bank. There's the Kidron Valley and then the West Bank. And, and the Palestinians are shooting their guns up in the air and cheering and all of this. And he said that as he was there seeing the people and um, talking with them, that the people were scared. They were literally scared. They said, this is war. We're at war. We're being bombed. Our cities, they were frightened. And I said to Jeff, I said, Jeff, you are you know, witnessing a little bit of what's going to happen in the last days, because in the last days, 
that they're going to be terrified. They can turn to no one. All they can do is cry out to God, and that's when God's going to open up you know, their eyes. And then in that day, all of Israel will be saved. We'll talk more specifically about that. But we have discussed this in our end-time prophecies. I think it is sad, I will say this, that I think it's sad that there are many, I don't know many, but I do know that there are evangelical churches that are saying that God is through with Israel. And they are, you know, um, teaching the replacement theology that God has uh, through with Israel, that he um, doesn't have a plan for them, that the church is spiritual Israel. And the Bible does not say that at all. God is going to fulfill his promise that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's going to fulfill his promise through the prophets that we have seen very clearly. And it is interesting, when you look at the letter that Jesus wrote in chapter 2 of the book of Revelation to Pergamus, that he wrote a letter and he, he would rebuke them because they were believing and promoting the doctrine of Balaam. Now you think, what's that have to do with anything? Think about it. The doctrine of Balaam, we know the story that Balak hired Balaam back in the book of Numbers. And it was Balaam that was to go and curse Israel, but God wouldn't let him. And he spoke blessings. So there are many that, the very, very smart, you know, scholars of end time prophecy that are suggesting that the doctrine of Balaam is very, very similar to the replacement theology. And think about it. God has cursed Israel when God has really blessed Israel. So it's interesting that we talk about all these things, but the upheaval that's going on in Israel, war will break out again. We'll talk about Psalm 83. Is there a final fulfillment of that, or is that going to be a precursor to Ezekiel chapter 38? We know that those nations in Psalm 38 are becoming more and more confident. Hamas has said, we won the war, and Fatah come and join us, and Hezbollah and Iran is arming them. They're saying, we can defeat the Jews. We can do this. And Syria mentioned that Damascus will be destroyed eventually, and it's interesting that Syria isn't mentioned in the, when it comes to the prophecies of the book of, uh, in the period of the tribulation period. So what's going to happen to Syria? We don't know exactly how it's all going to come out. Only God knows, but we do know that those prophecies will be fulfilled. Here's what's happening. This is coming out tonight out of the Middle East. That Syria loads chemical weapons into bombs. Military awaits Assad's order. That the Syrian military is prepared to use chemical weapons against its own people and is awaiting final orders from President Assad, U.S. officials told NBC News on Wednesday. This just came out a few hours ago. The military has loaded up the precursors, chemicals for sarin, a deadly nerve gas and aerial bombs that could be dropped into the Syrian people from dozens of fighter bombers, the officials said. As recently as Tuesday, officials said that there was not yet any evidence that the process of mixing the precursors, chemicals, had begun, but Wednesday, that is today, they said their worst fears had been confirmed. The nerve agents were locked and loaded inside the bombs. Sarin is an extraordinarily lethal agent. Saddam Hussein used it in 1988. One time, a single attack killed 5,000 Kurds. U.S. officials stressed that as of now, the sarin bombs hadn't been loaded into planes and that Assad hadn't issued a final order to use them. But if he does, one of the officials said, there is little the outside world can do to stop it. We're getting close. So I want to leave you with this. Holy follow the Lord. 
This is not a time where there needs to be compromising your life or prioritizing the things of the world. The Lord is coming back. And things are happening so fast that I believe that can happen at any moment that the Lord comes for us. And this is perilous times that we're facing. There's so much that we can talk about, but what we're going to do is we're going to go to the communion table and remember what Jesus has done for us. But what my prayer is for this Christmas season is that you would be a light and that when people do see you, they see the zeal of the Lord, but that zeal is because I have a heart that is humble before you, Lord, and the love of the Lord. And Lord, I want to walk with you and I want to leave a godly heritage to my children, to my grandchildren. If you do, tarry, Lord. And Lord, I want to experience your blessings and be used of you. Because people need Jesus. That you are truly the priority. And Jesus, you came and died for me. And that's why we come to the communion table to remember the credible act that Jesus did in going to the cross and allowing his body to be broken and his blood shed for forgiveness of sin and this new covenant that is ours, the new covenant that we live in, being established, just being followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, marveling at his incredible grace, walking in the Spirit and being a light for him. So, Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you so much for, um, as we look at these chapters, it can be difficult, but Lord, we also know that they're important for us to look at and understand the consequences of sin. And I am so thankful that, that we in this room, that Lord, that we have the promise of eternal life and forgiveness of sin as we've surrendered our hearts to you, submitted our hearts to you. Lord, you're the one that sees the heart. And Father, a couple things. I just pray if there is anyone that by chance happens to be here, you've never surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ. You've never come to Jesus Christ. We want you to understand the gospel message, and it's that Jesus came and died for you. And he's the only one that can save you. And sin and death has come into the world because of Adam's sin. But Jesus Christ, the last Adam... The one who is righteous came and died for you to take care of the sin problem. That is, he made atonement for your sin. He is the propitiation, or that is the satisfaction for your sin. He went to the cross because of his love for you. And that's why we come to the communion table. Jesus said, do this. Take of the bread and eat it. This is my body broken for you. Take of the, the cup, which is, symbolizes my blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. Do this in remembrance of me. You first come to Christ. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. To turn to him tonight if you've never done that. Because we're rushing towards eternity. And Jesus died for you and made provision for eternal life. If you just come and surrender your heart, if you've never done that, just pray, Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive me of my sins. I believe that you are the son of God who died for me. And I confess that I am a sinner. And I surrender to you. I open my heart to you. Be my personal Lord and Savior. And thank you for dying for me. I believe you're alive and you rose again because you're knocking on the door of my heart. And thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. And for all of us that are here tonight, that as we get ready to come to the communion table, 
that the lesson that we see is, Lord, if there is things in our hearts, you're the one that sees the heart. 